Well, Brian and Annabelle are back from the Philippines next week. They're going to share a little, a little bit, a couple testimonies of what has transpired over there. Some really uh, awesome things. And, um, you know, the congregation there that we're helping out financially is really just honored and blessed. Um, and so they were kind of communicating with us, which is really awesome. So we'll get, we'll get a bit of report next week, right, guys? I, th- I think we were saying awesome, awesome. So uh, today we're going to be out of uh, Mark 6 and also Luke 7. Um, you can turn to those or to one of them. And uh, today we're going to uh, continue our sermon series on the times and life of Jesus. Um, anyone liking this? Liking this little yes. thing? Yeah? Oh, okay. Cool. I just have to boost myself up a little bit before I get talking. Just to encourage me, you know. Now I'm, I'm hoping, um, you know, because this is new for me too, I'm kind of we're kind of looking at the Gospels in a little bit of a different light, uh, which means that there's a little bit more study that has to take place. And just want to, you know, see if it's, it's laying on, on good soil that you guys are receiving it. But yeah, we've been going on a journey on the, the times and life of Jesus to understand the Gospels also through a bit of a historical and cultural lens. Uh, and so today um, is really the next event um, in the Lord's life and really in his ministry. And uh, what's happening here is amazement. Uh, to amaze, it's a verb, to fill with wonder, to astound, awe, good, righteous fear of the Lord, like to be amazed. Um, and, you know, I was, I was meditating on this and looking at the, the stories and, you know, the Lord was just reminding me and I want to remind you guys, like, do you know and are you aware that you are able to amaze Jesus? You're able to cause him to wonder about you. Like there is scriptural proof text for this, which we're going to take a look at. Like we're talking about the being amazed about Jesus, but do you understand that you actually can amaze him? You can amaze him in a positive sense. So um, there are actually two times in scripture where Jesus actually vocalizes and says that he is amazed. Or people looking at him and says, Jesus was amazed. It's really uh, quite interesting. Uh, the first one, not the greatest reason to be amazed. But the second scripture reading, which we'll, we'll get to, will, will be the more positive. But they work together. So uh, Mark chapter 6, we'll begin in uh, verse 1. We're going to jump around maybe a little bit. But you know, just so you have an understanding. It says, Jesus rejected at Nazareth, is what it says in the title of my chapter. It says, then he, Jesus, went out from there. And came to his own country, right? The Galilee area. It's important to know. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on just a few of the sick people and healed them. Isn't that funny? Like, he couldn't do any, like, anything really big. He just healed a couple people. And then moved on. Like he, he didn't raise anyone from the dead, but he was healing people. It's quite, quite interesting. And then here it is. 
And he, Jesus, marveled or was amazed, depending on your translation, because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in circuit teaching. So what we have here is that Jesus is actually amazed. He's pondered. He's perplexed. He's marveled at the unbelief of people. I mean, it's his hometown. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been doing all these things. And he's doing his circuit. He goes back up to the Galilee after going down to Jerusalem. He's back up there. And... Uh, He's just like, man, these people don't have... I'm, I'm shocked that they do not have the faith, especially after all the things they've seen. So that's one time that Jesus is actually amazed. Uh, another one, which is what we're really going to preach out of today, uh, is Luke chapter 7. Yes, number seven. Luke 7. Still up uh, in this gospel. He's up in the, uh, the Galilee again. And it says now, in verse 1, now when he, Jesus, concluded all of his sayings. Notice this is like after the, uh, essentially the Sermon on the Mount. So he gave his Sermon on the Mount, which we were kind of talking about last week. And now he's moving away from his Sermon on the Mount. And it says, now he went to back up to Capernaum, a couple miles away from the Sermon on the Mount. So he goes for a walk, he heads back to Capernaum. And there a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, this centurion, he sent elders of the Jewish people to him, to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So here is a Roman centurion, an officer in the most powerful military in the world, who loves the Jewish people so much that he gives money and he builds them a synagogue. That's very, very unique and is part of our story, story today. So Jesus, he, he likes us. You should heal him. You should heal his servant. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I mean, he's declaring that he's, that he's Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under, under my roof. Uh, he's a Gentile. Uh, Jewish people were not supposed to enter into the house of a Gentile because it would be considered unclean in those days. You don't even have to come in. You are the Lord. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him was amazed at the centurion and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found such faith, not even in all of Israel. All right. So, what we have here is a Roman. Astonishes Jesus because of his faith. The faith that he had. And uh, many of us, and I was even tempted... Uh, to teach 
on the concept of like authority, right? Like the centurion understands authority. He's a man in position of authority. He tells his soldiers what to do. He doesn't have to show up and fight every single section of the battle. So he understands the realm of authority. And so authority is given into Jesus. So you can just tell Jesus, you know, he's going to do it. And boom, that's it. Right? You don't have to come into the house and do all this, all this ring we're all. I mean, Jesus just says, you know, Talita Kumi, rise little one. And she, right? He doesn't have to like pray for like three hours. He's just like, get up. So, the understanding of authority. I mean, I was going to maybe t- teach on that, but I felt like for me, and where I'm at, you know, um, and maybe I'm hoping where we're at, there's a little bit of another piece of a story that's going on here. Yeah, yeah there's authority, and we can teach on that, but many of us have probably heard a sermon on it. Has anyone ever heard, like, a kind of a sermon on, like, the centurion authority? All right, a couple of us, all right. Um, but I was like, but, 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 he amazes Jesus. A man amazes the Son of God, who is eternal, who always was, is, and will be, who has seen and has sat in the throne room of God. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I was just a little distracted. Like, what just happened? Step away from the trigger. Like, this is Jesus who, has, who sits in eternal places. And a simpleton, a little Italian, right, astounds the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It's like, holy cow, there's something here. I haven't seen such faith in even Israel. Is that including Abraham, Jesus, or is it not including Abraham? Is it including Moses? Is it including David? Like, are you talking about just Israel right now or all of Israel of all eternity? I don't know. The prepositions aren't there in the Greek, but it's something that shocks Jesus. That he himself is astonished. I was like, all right, what, what's going on here? And so I think a way to understand the astonishment and being able to amaze the Son of God is to step a little bit into Greco-Roman culture to understand why and where this Roman centurion is coming from, that he can take that and amaze the Son of God. So, what is it like to be a Roman pagan? It's kind of depressing. They have an afterlife. In their theology at the time, it was actually quite confusing because there were different people who had different radical views, but essentially it was broken down into this. On the left is Elysium. It's a, a heavenly place. On the right is Hades, hell. The two are separated by a river. <clears throat> and what's really depressing is Hades, hell, is for the bad and also for the good. Like if you're a good person, you're going to go into Hades. You're going to go into hell, even if you're a good person. Now, okay, well, it's like, well, Roman, how do you get to Elysium? How do you get to Valhalla? How do you get to heaven, right? Well, what you would have to do is your parents, or rather your kids, I guess, that bury you, would have to give you a coin. And you would have to pay, literally, a sailor, I guess, somehow, in like this kind of weird, heavenly, eternally kind of thing, to, to, to have you cross this river. So you have to have riches, you have to have riches, and you need to bring riches into the afterlife in order to make the transport. But even that, even wealthy people, sometimes they may not want to go over this river to bring you to paradise. 
So Elysium uh, was largely uh, a place for heroes. In Roman culture, you could have access to Elysium, their version of heaven, if you are a hero. This is where you get the highly militaristic society of Rome. The soldier, the legion, toughness, conquer, empire. Because when you're fighting on the battlefield, if you are a hero, what happens to you? In their worldview, you go to a heavenly place. Hence, we have a centurion here. This guy is a little boy is learning about these concepts. Like, if I just become a soldier and I become a hero for my people, right, my name will be given great things and I will even be able to enter into this eternity. This is a centurion. This is how he's grown up. This is the militaristic society. This is Rome that caused, like, the barbarians to shudder and to freak out. This is the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, probably up until now, with America. It's argued has trumped the power of Rome. What are some of the other kind of things? And there's a reason for this, okay? And those people that are going to be reading today, if you guys can can get ready with your scripture verses, you know what I'm talking about. The perspective of Roman gods and goddesses, this this is kind of the way that they looked at things. Um, They had gods that were over certain cities, right? Hence a Roman centurion, like this, this is what he's learning about when he's a kid. So there isn't one eternal God. There's one God. There are gods that are, that are ruling over geographical areas. Two, the gods are immortal, but they acted like humans. Uh, and they're actually, they had human vices. Like they had their own hang-ups. They had their jealousy. They had their pride. They had their ego. They had all these kind of things. Three, the gods would like fight each other. Four, the gods would play tricks on humans. And five, the gods were not almighty. They still had to obey the laws and the forces of fate. Okay? Now, this is what this centurion would have learned as a kid. And he probably took it hook, line, and hook, line, and sinker because he has become a centurion. Like, the sure way to become a hero. And so, this little Roman dude speaking Latin... Maybe he's from Florence, maybe he's from Sicily, maybe he's from Rome, maybe he's from Naples, maybe he's somewhere from Rome, like Rome proper, is sent now as at some point a a teenager probably or 20 years of age, he's now sent to the edge of the Roman Empire. And the edge of the Roman Empire is there. Right there. It's like, oh. I gotta go to the edge of this, like the empire where there's not as much civilization. It's like Podunk area. I've heard stories of like dust and weird animals, like camels and things like that. And this kid, this guy, goes to the edge of the empire to a place. That place in Latin is Iudea. In Hebrew, it's Yehuda. In English, it's Judea. He sent to the edge of the empire, to a place called Judea. (laughs) And the people from Judea, they had a different version. (laughs) They had a different version of God. They had a different version of the cosmos. And this centurion never heard of such things, but now he's living, 
breathing and has to be an authority in this land. And the people of Judea had a call. Isaiah 42.6 I, the Lord, have called you Israel into righteousness and will hold your hand and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light unto the Gentiles, to the non-Jew, to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to any other people. But I've called you to be light. You see, the people of Judea have a call to spread the light of the one true God unto all the nations. And now one very powerful nation, Rome, has come to them. See, this is a part of the context. You know, we, we read in Luke 7, it says that the, the Roman, in a strange sense, is giving money to the Jewish community. He's giving money for them to build synagogues. It's like, well, why, why is he doing this? Because he saw the light of Israel. That's why. He's there, and he's like, all right, so what has happened here in the past is this is the way in which they taught us. And now, these five statements, the people of Judea have a different view of this. Up. Uh, Josh, with the microphone, I think the first person we're going to go to is Kate. So we're just going to read a couple scripture verses to see what the Bible has to say about the Roman centurion, pagan, Greco-Roman worldview. Number one, gods, the pagans believe gods were over certain cities. But if the people of Judea were being a light and through their life and through their teachings and through their interactions, they're showing the people of Rome that are coming, they're showing the centurions a different way. Oh, I get it. Yeah, that's kind of cute. You have a bunch of gods that are over a bunch of different cities. Well, guess what my God is? My God is Psalm 24, 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. <sighs> Wait a second. Your God is one God that controls the whole earth, who spoke and created it, and he doesn't share authority with any other creature or God? No. Our God is not that small, O Roman centurion. Really? All right. But you see... Us Romans, we, we believe that, that, yeah, our gods are immortal like yours, but they act like humans, and sometimes they do things that are wrong, and they have these human vices and jealousies and ego. And probably some little Judean boy from the galley says, oh, that's cute, Mr. Soldier. Our God is Deuteronomy 33, 27. And who's next? I think that's John, right? Let me go back to John. Deuteronomy 33, 27. Oh, that's cute. Your God has vices and all this kind of stuff. That's cute. Okay, this is from the Matthew. The eternal God is the one that is and underneath the earth, the left and he drives out the enemies from before you and says, destroy. That might be the wrong scripture verse I gave you. But that's okay. You're getting the point. I think. You read 3327? All right, let's go back. Let's see what happens. Um, number three, the gods would fight each other. 
It could be because it's the NASB. No, it's just a joke. <laughs> Get into a translation war. Three, uh, gods would fight each other. Okay? So the gods would always be backbiting and fighting each other and, and, and making things happen. Uh, but uh, my god is uh, Psalm 68.1. I think that's Brian. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes be All right. So... It's very simple. God doesn't need to fight. All he has to do is arise from his quiet, I guess. He just has to arise and boom, his enemies are immediately scattered. The enemies are destroyed when he just decides that it's time. He doesn't have to fight. He could just be like, eh, it's over. Wow, your God is that powerful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, our gods, they sometimes play tricks on us to try to teach us things. And they meddle with us and they have all this kind of stuff. And I believe this is going to be Alan. You know, we can't really trust our gods because they like to trick us in, into things. And they say, well, you know what? Our God is Numbers 23, 19 to 20. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. Wait a minute. Your God has spoken and says that he's not even liking unto man, nor has human vices, and he's not going to lie. But actually his purpose and his plan is that he has commanded that he would bless us. The Roman has never heard of such things. Has never heard of such things. Everything is in complete opposition that he has learned, right? Right? And the last one is, oh, well, you know, our gods, they're not almighty. They have to obey fate. Well, that's really cute, and that's really funny, because actually one of the names of our god is El Elyon, the most high almighty god. So there's no question that he's almighty, because his actual name is almighty. He is fate. He sets it into motion. He does it all. And the Roman is there, and the Roman is in complete, utter amazement. Why? Because it's new. It's completely new to him. And his heart is like, wow. How can this be? No one has ever taught me of such things. The background to the Roman we need to, to clarify, to really get a deep understanding of it. The background to this is, is something a little cerebral, but not so much. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, begins with the phrase, Dear Theophilus. And now there's 28 chapters recording the acts of the apostles, the moving of the Holy Ghost, the gospel going from, yes, to the Jewish people, but now also to the Gentiles and the Gentile world. It is like painstakingly setting out the journey and the development of the church after Jesus' birth, the falling of the Holy Ghost, going through, yes, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the beginnings of going into the Roman Empire. Painstakingly doing this. And it's kind of like, wait, like would Luke, who most, you know, most likely wrote Acts, why would Luke go through all of this to write to a guy by the name of Theophilus? Well, many scholars... Many like legit scholars believe it's not written to a person. It's written to a group of people. 
Theo, God, Phyllis, lovers, or fears. Dear God, fears. Or dear God, lovers. When we mean fears, we mean like the all, the righteous all of God. What we know through tons and tons of writing, and what we know from the New Testament, is that at the time of Jesus, and right before Jesus' coming, there is a group of people on planet Earth known as the God-fearers. The God-fearers are not Jews. They are Gentiles that say, Yahweh is the one true God, but I'm not Jewish. This entire book of Acts most likely is being written to all of the God-fearers, all of the Gentiles, all the people like you and I, who are not of Israel's seed, who were not around to hear the workings of the gospel and the proclaiming and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hey, you Gentiles throughout the empire, this is what's going on. And we want to pay you homage because you've been following the one true God. You've been following the God of Israel and now we need to tell you about his Messiah. So the Roman centurion, why is he giving money? Why is he allowing a synagogue to be built? Because he's one of the righteous Gentiles. He is a non-Jew who moved to Judea for work, comes in contact with the goodness of the God of Israel, and is like, this is the way. This is it. And now he's sowing into it. He's giving money. He's doing all this kind of stuff. And so what happens here is that in paganism, there's a distant God. And in Judaism, there is a personal God who's almighty, who wants to bless you, who's on your side, who fights for you. Heaven is his throne room and earth is his footstool. That's how powerful this guy is. Right? The call of, of the Jewish people, Isaiah 42, 6, which we read, right? That the light would go unto the Gentiles. And this Roman is like, the light has come unto me. But now, there's a guy, a rabbi, who's teaching the full picture. This is why we need to read Scripture. This is why we need to read the entirety of Scripture. Isaiah 42, 6, I just read. Let's go to Isaiah 42, 1. Who is going to bring the light to the Gentiles. Behold my servant whom I will uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you, the elect one, into righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you a covenant to the peoples and be a light unto the Gentiles. Isaiah 42 is speaking of who? The elect one, Jesus. 
And I believe that this Roman centurion, when he comes in context and when he hears of Jesus, he's like, this is the man. This is the one that the scripture is being received. Like he, he has, the Roman centurion has a working understanding of scripture. Because he's probably going to the synagogue and he's learning and he's doing these things. He's got a working knowledge of this. He's like, oh my goodness, this is the man who is to bring light to the whole world, to the Gentiles. And so the centurion is astonished at the beauty of God. And because of this simplicity of faith, he astounds Jesus by his faith. He astounds Jesus. You're not even of the tribe of Israel. And you get it, man. And he's shocked. Jesus is shocked by his faith. Here's the thing. You and I will either astonish Jesus with your lack of faith or with your abundance of faith. Mark 6, the sons of Israel astonished God because of their lack of faith. The Roman centurion astonishes God because of his faith, his abundance of faith. They both astonish God, one for their lack and one for it. So it's like, well, why? It really comes down to this. In Israel, and particularly in Galilee, and particularly in Nazareth, where Jesus is hanging out, the Son of God and God has become too familiar and too casual. Too casual. We're so used to him that it becomes an idea. That it becomes just a philosophy. That it becomes not a father, but just this thing, this idea out there. But to the Roman centurion, who has never cut his teeth on this stuff, it is so new, it is so fresh, it is so exciting to know that he could be a part and be, will be a part of this experience and, and to know God in this way. That's what's going on here. So, one uh, writer, one Jewish writer puts it this way. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. If you have the worship team calling up. I believe there's a lot of people who have become too casual and too familiar with the sacred that they forgot what the sacred is. We became so casual as sons and daughters of promise, growing up in the Christian church or being saved for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, right? You just assume that like, this, you know, this is just the way it is. But we're called, we're, we're called to be amazed. And we're called to amaze Jesus. And you can't be amazed and you can't amaze if you take things for granted, if your life with God has become casual, something to be taken for granted. It happened in Israel. The Roman, it was fresh, it was new. 
It was exciting. Like, he's completely astounded by the truth of God and his word. Because he never had an interaction with it before. So we'd say here, like, okay, well, how do we, how do we guard ourselves from casual, from a casual expression with the Lord? How do we do that? The scriptures tell us. First thing is thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6-7 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. The Messiah, Christ, Jesus. In any kind of uh, experience, it could be uh, with your spouse, it could be with a kid, it could be with your eternal father. Things become too casual when you forget to be thankful. Thankfulness is the fuel of heaven. To have a thankful heart, you will be reminded of the goodness of the Lord. Be thankful for your spouse. Be thankful for your kids. Be thankful to God. We need to walk out with always, always, always giving thanks unto the Lord. Because things in our world have become too casual. You eat a strawberry, you just eat a strawberry. And it dawned on me years ago, like, what if I ate a strawberry and I slowed everything down? What if you actually slowed things down and you look at the strawberry and you feel the strawberry and you wash the strawberry and you take one bite and you let the taste just linger in your mouth? If you did that, you'd be astonished at the taste, the texture, the beauty of God's creation. But no, just pop a strawberry, throw another strawberry, just cut up a bunch of strawberries, put it inside the Cheerios, put the milk on, you won't even taste the strawberries. Be present in the moment with the Holy Ghost. And be thankful for the small things that are tremendous things. I can go to the grocery store at any point of the year and buy a tropical fruit and eat it and taste it and see and sense its flavor. I can wake up in the morning and go to the shower and go like this. And filtered water at just whatever temperature I want comes out and I can bathe myself for pennies to a gallon. Thank you. Because every good and perfect gift comes from your Father above, not from the United States government or, not, or from an inventor. Comes from your Father above. I'm not one to like, you know, beat ourselves up and sackcloth and ashes and stuff. But many times we take the cross for granted. Take time in your day. 
to be thankful for the cross. Did you think about the cross today? Oh, it's Sunday. Maybe you did. Did you think, did you think about the cross yesterday? Did you think about the salvation, the Lamb of God who is pure, perfect, lacking nothing? Who chose through His love to be poured out as a drink offering to His Father? You want to think about those things which will not make spirituality casual. Meditate on all things that are of good report, high, noble, honorable, uplifting. The cross. I'm not saying beat yourself up about it, but man, the cross, the cross, the cross. The blood of Jesus. To be reminded That we don't have to do a whole bunch of laws. That we don't have to cut ourselves. That we don't have to plead before pagans. That we don't have to enter into a state of nothingness of some kind of weird Nirvana Buddha thing. But we can actually just receive the blood of Jesus and my entire past is gone. And my entire future is now eternal and loved by Him. Meditate on those things and get wrecked. And get wrecked. That will keep things fresh, man. Recognize. Recognize that you like to centurion, you have faith. You have faith. You already have faith. Like you believe in him, you call out to him, you come to Sunday, you pray to him, you you do you already have faith of him. And we're like, ah, you know, but lots of people have faith. Well, I tell you what, man. John chapter 20, verse 29 says, Jesus said unto Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Man, I don't, I don't be like struck dead and the Lord can like judge me when I get up to heaven, but let me care. I hope you hear my heart and like the sim- symbology I'm trying to get at here. In many regards, uh, that, that's probably the best way to put it, right? In many regards. In many regards, you have more faith than the disciples. Thomas, you believe in me because you see me. And you have seen me. Pretty hard, Peter, to believe in Jesus when you see him doing all these miracles. I have never seen Jesus face to face. I wasn't here when he was alive on earth. But yet I believe. And John 20, out of the mouth of Jesus, Oh, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and have, and yet have believed. In some nature, we have more faith than the apostles. Because we haven't seen him, but yet we believe in him. Talk about amazing Jesus. Talk about amazing him and amazing his heart. He's like, man, you guys are 2,000 years away from my ministry on earth, and yet you believe. Come on. You know that's such in his heart. Meditate on his love. Meditate, as I was saying, on his love and the death and the resurrection. And meditate on the Holy Spirit as we taught Brother Lawrence pursuing his presence. Like taking time, yeah, eating that strawberry and meditating not on the strawberry, and the meditating on the beauty of the Holy Spirit and him and acknowledging that he's here and keeping him in front of your face so he's not casual and he's not so familiar, but he's a source of wonder and astonishment. You know? You get what I'm saying? 
in closing up, I just, I just have to read this. This issue has happened many times in scriptures. One was with Job and his friends. And Job is like listening to his friends like, oh, what, what about God? And maybe he's punishing you and, and what's going on? And I can't figure out why am I sick? Why is this going on? What, what's going on? Like, there's all this crazy stuff going on. But to behold the wonder of God again. To behold his wonder. To look at a newborn babe and be like, this is a miracle. To look at a leaf and be like, every single year that thing comes back. And that little green leaf, leaf gives oxygen for me to breathe. And ponder the cross. That God wants you. Wants me. On his lap. That's pure amazement. If you stop, you invite the Holy Spirit to reveal this all to you in a new way. Because we have not seen, but yet we believe. This is God talking to Job. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? God laid the foundations of the earth. Meditate on that. Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined the measurements of the earth? Surely you know, Job. Or do you know who stretched the line upon the earth? To what were its foundations fastened? Like, how does it stay in its orbit? Were you there when the, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you entered the springs, the source of the seas, and have you walked in search of its depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? This is like God saying, I've seen that, I've created it. Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war, by what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Where does the wind come from? Where does it go? Can you lift up your voice upon the clouds as I? Can you send out lightnings? Can you say, here we are, who has put wisdom in the mind or has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven, of water when the dust hardens in the clubs? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? My brother-in-law and I, you know, Jose, we were running for a run late last night. We were like kind of just rapping and talking about today. And it goes from 105 to like 60 degrees, right, within 24 hours. It's dark out, run through a park, there's headlamps on. And there's a cool, beautiful mist. We're running by in this time of year, the grasses are high. Everything's like in full bloom and where our arms are just kind of gracing the side of the grass as we run. 
are talking about this and it's just like, look, if you just stop, if you just stop and witness the marvel of his creation. If you stop, stop, you'll marvel at all the good things that he has made. And all of this came out of his mouth. The Lord spoke, and the heavens and the earth were created. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He came to the earth and breathed life, breathed his breath into us. Amazing stuff. Amen? Let us amaze him again. Let's amaze him with our faith. And it's not something that you have to conjure up. I just have more faith, more faith, more faith. No. The simplicity of the centurion is he just, he's amazed. He's amazed by the work of God. And so his love and his heart is amazing to Jesus. It's not something you do, it's something that you receive. You receive the amazing works of God and his love. And your body is just going to like split open with amazement and wonder. That's how it's done. 